0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I told myself I wasn't going to bring up the Minnesota Vikings again. But if you wanted to watch a game that brought a lot of surprises into your living room, you might have tuned into the Vikings against the Bills last Sunday. And no offense to Bills fans out there, but. And by the end of the game, there have been so many twists and turns that both teams, I think, would say they, they lived through feelings of having lost the game maybe three times and having won the game maybe three times. If you're walking out of that game, do you feel encouraged or discouraged? Well, it probably depends on which team you're on. In your day-to-day life, what is it that at the end of the day can, can leave you going home and saying my existence in this world brings something positive into the world around me? Now if you're the one on the team who, who fumbled the, the snap on the goal line or miscued the snap and as a result, the most unexpected twists and turns led to the other team winning because of your mistake? Would you go home feeling like your existence in this world does not have a real positive effect on the team? On the other hand, if you caught the game-winning pass for a touchdown, are you gonna say, well, my existence does contribute positively to this team? But we know we can't judge our contribution to the world based on momentary experiences that we go through every day. So when I ask you the question, what does your existence in this world mean? Does it contribute negatively or positively to this world? You have to pause. You have to pause and listen. Because depending on how you're feeling in that moment or what you've been through, you could end up telling yourself a lot of lies. Instead, Peter says to have a self-controlled, sober mind for the sake of your prayers. He goes on to unpack this in the final verses of, of his letter to show you why your existence in this church and in this world is a necessary, positive contribution to what God intends for everyone around you, even if you don't feel like it right now. He says this because the end of all things is at hand. And with the end of all things at hand, you can easily be swayed into all sort of drunken thinking. The opposite of being sober-minded is to have an intoxicated, way of thinking. Being intoxicated with revenge. Being intoxicated with failure. Being intoxicated with pride. Being intoxicated by the circumstances that are pushing you this way because you got the touchdown and things are great or pushing you that way because you fumbled and things are horrible. But Peter says have a sober mind Meaning clear yourself of all of that so you can listen to God's word. And as we go through this, we'll see that Peter is really leading us to this last part in our Peter series for having a strange hope. A hope that is strangely heartening for a world that is being devoured by the devil. There's a lot of different ways to win a game, and ultimately winning the game means it's not up to one individual. One of the reasons I think that the Minnesota Vikings have been successful this year is the team effort because most people look at them and there hasn't been any superstar numbers in one individual or another individual. In fact, there's been plenty of blunders to go around. That means they probably could be one in seven as much as they could be seven in one. But it has always been that in the midst of making mistakes, the team's been there to pick up, come back out, and fight again. Now, all around us are people who we know are gonna make mistakes. And they're not just around us, they're right there where you're sitting in your spot and in your body are gonna be mistakes, fumbles. We're not all gonna be the quarterback. We're not all gonna be the star defensive player that gets a game-winning interception, but we all need to be out on the field. The Christian faith is a team game, which is why Peter says, above all, love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Love is that power and encouragement that binds us together when things are going wrong on the team. When somebody is dropping the ball, when a Christian is caught up in things they shouldn't be caught up in, when somebody just can't seem to get over some kind of hurtful thing that somebody said to them. It's the team effort that brings us back to pick each other up. Some people are more in the background, some people are more in the front, but we're all in it together. And loving includes showing hospitality, Peter says, And serving each other with your gifts. So when I asked you what your existence is worth in this world, the answer can never be nothing. Peter says that the grace of God has been given to each of you. And grace in the Bible means a gift. The grace of God includes the great gift of Jesus Christ, who has done what you could never do, beyond what you imagined or deserved or have achieved, God's grace has come to save you, to make you a part of his team and kingdom and purpose. If God saved you, would he save you for nothing? But that doesn't mean every purpose is the same or every gift of grace is the same because beyond the gift of salvation, are many more graces that Peter says God is giving out, a varied or manifold grace. Some are able to speak, others are able to serve. Whether you see yourself as someone who can get up and be a leader in the church. We have a voters meeting come up up this afternoon to look for leaders and I'll tell you that you can be as busy as you want and have as many reasons as you can to think you're not the person. But if God has given you that gift, pray about it and realize he might still have you be that person to step into a leadership speaking role, a place in the church with the women's group, or with the council, or elders, or any other place where he needs leaders. That doesn't mean our gifts of public speaking are all the same, but it does mean God gives out these gifts to everyone, not just for leadership, but also for serving. So maybe you're more quiet, shy. Maybe you're more in the background. But have you ever thought about what your strengths are? God is saying that we all have weaknesses, yes. In fact, we are ready to recognize those weaknesses probably more than we even should, because those are the things that keep popping up and causing us to stumble, and we say, ah, I did it again. But now Peter says, no, you have strengths. Somebody sent me a link just this last week to a website where you can fill out questions and answers to figure out what your character strengths are. But before you even need to fill that form out, in your prayers, you can ask God, what's my strength? As we face the end times, Peter says, in everything, when we're working together with God's grace in us, God will be glorified. And as we are working together, as we are a team, we can expect adversity. The next part Peter brings up is the fiery trial of suffering, how we need to be encouraged when we're suffering together. But one thing Peter says we should not be surprised at is the fact that we are suffering. Suffering is, in fact, a sign of God's grace, that God has a purpose for you. He specifically says, don't be surprised when things go wrong. Don't be surprised when you are suffering for something someone else did or said. Now, there's plenty of ways we can suffer for what we've done wrong. In fact, Peter lists being a murderer, being a thief, being an evildoer, or being a busybody. In all of these things, we can suffer, but this is not the suffering that Peter's talking about. He's talking about suffering as a Christian. And as soon as you lay hold of the teachings and message that I'm delivering here from God's word, as you lay hold of that in your heart, you can expect, (laughs) without a doubt, the devil's going to come for you. He's gonna respond to that because he hates it. He hates the message we're preaching, he hates the grace of God, and he hates when you're starting to get it. And you can expect when those moments come It is both the devil having a purpose to attack and undermine what you believe and who you are, but that it's also God. Just like the men in the fiery furnace stood with Jesus through their trial, suffering for what they believed, we stand with Jesus, the one who suffered for us. And then you know you are blessed. And this is the strangest thing, not to us, but to the world about Christian suffering, is when the world can see Christian suffering and yet they're still happy. Not that they're bouncing off the wall, celebrating the fact that they have cancer or celebrating the fact that they lost their job or someone hates them, but that they are living in a state of joy an unchangeable joy that is in the Spirit, so that even if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you can rejoice because you know the very reason for that happening is that the Spirit is with you. The third point that Peter brings up about encouraging one another has to do with the leadership. The leadership in the church, where Peter is addressing, it's called the eldership. He speaks to the elders, not only to those who are older, but elders is picturing in, in the New Testament, those who are pastors and leaders who are together in the ministry of shepherding the flock. They're elders in the sense that they're more experienced. And the younger are younger in the sense that they're more new to the faith. So he addresses the elders and tells them, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. One of the differences I've seen in the Vikings between last year and this year, it doesn't have to do with the players. In fact, the Vikings have pretty much the exact same team they had last year. Pretty much everything is the same. And yet last year consistently to the point they almost broke a record for losing the most close games. Of any team in history, and this year they are breaking the same record. Only they're winning the close games. Last year they had uh, 14 games that were uh, decided by a score or less, and they won only six of those. This year they've had eight games that are just that close. And they've won every one of them. What's the difference? Well the difference isn't in the players but there is a difference it's a new coach. Some of the players have talked about the coach they had previous to this team being just by the end the whole leadership had become toxic. <laughs> Nobody was talking to each other. Uh, when you walked down the hallway they just gave you the cold shoulder. If you made a mistake They made you feel like you were the worst player in the world. And if you did something good, you basically didn't get noticed. But now they have a new coach. And I'm not trying to figure out everything about this new coach, but I'll tell you one thing about Kevin O'Connell is he comes across as a man who stands up for what's good and right, a humble man, and someone who leads by example. So when things were going wrong, he didn't call out his kicker or his quarterback. He took ownership when they lost to the Eagles by 20 points. There's something about having a coach that's willing to take ownership, take responsibility, and lead by example. How much more is this true in the church? How much more true is it when our church is leading each other as fellow sheep in the midst of wolves? There's plenty of church leadership approaches, books, programs, consultants you can find in the world that are trying to teach people how to lead in the church. And yet consistently, churches are attracting narcissistic, selfish, prideful, failed leaders. Why is this? It's so easy for leadership to attract people that are in it for a paycheck or they're in it for personal interest, or they're in it to get recognition. And when the ministry attracts those men and they don't realize it, it's a recipe for disaster. It might be good for a while, a church might grow, it might be positive to have that influx of energy, but I'll tell you, as time goes on, if those are the priorities in a church, is, is growth and money and prestige and looks, It's eventually going to fade. Eventually it will turn toxic. Which is why Peter says, we need leaders who aren't in it for those reasons. But like Jesus, they're in it to suffer. They're in it not to domineer over those who are in their responsibility. But they lead simply by being examples. I told my elders not too long ago that... The only real difference between their job and my job is that I get paid to do it. Because becoming an elder in the church is a volunteer position. being on the council is a volunteer position. Showing up and serving at LWO is a volunteer effort. But it's not true that you don't get paid. In fact, Peter says that when the chief shepherds appear, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the crown and the reward and the payment for service that you won't get in this world. It won't be seen by being on the cover of a book or magazine or writing a famous article or you get paid for it. Instead, it'll be given when Jesus appears. And there's plenty of you out there that have the gifts to step into different roles. And remember, the reward is well worth it. The final part that Peter addresses has to do with how we are going to stand together in the end. So all the ways we serve together, the way we suffer together, the way we shepherd together, and now finally how we stand together together. In the end, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the right time, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist Him, firm in the faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In the days of Peter, he was experiencing that fiery trial, not only figuratively, but literally. Peter lived through the time of the reign of Nero. When Rome had expanded its power and was so successful at taking over the world, one leader would come and another leader would go. It was during Peter's life that they experienced the reign of Nero. Now, Nero was famous for basically being crazy. He was famous for uh, all of the trouble that he started for the Roman Empire to the point where he actually burned down parts of Rome in order to blame it on the Christians. He's burning down his own city in order to try to insult and give a bad reputation to the believers of Jesus Christ. That's how much of a threat the humble hope of Christians were to the world powers. Some Christians would end up being taken to Rome. And as they were taken to the Rome captive, they knew they were probably never going back home. Because when they get there, they had a place they put them called the Colosseum. And they would put Christians into the Colosseums with wild lions in order to teach them never to disobey or stand against the Roman Empire again. However, Peter's not concerned with the lions in the Colosseum. Instead, he mentions a lion that's prowling about in the world around the Colosseum. In the world out there, in our lives, seeking to devour. In the story of Cain and Abel, you find this prowling power of sin that is trying to take over Cain and rule his life. It's described as something crouching at the door, waiting for that door to be opened, like a lion waiting for its prey. And the Lord warns him, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is to rule over you, but you should rule over it. Now, if we open that door, which we are eventually going to have to open that door, we can't hide in our rooms and closets forever. When we finally open that door, if our preparation is only filled with pride, with the thought that I can handle this on my own, that I can face this evil or trouble, that I can get through this because I'm tough. I've done it before, I'll do it again. I can tell you what the outcome will be. And Cain was overcome with jealousy, he was overcome with hatred, and he finally killed his brother. Peter says, humble yourselves. The mighty hand of God is not a pleasant thing to have on you. Peter quotes Psalm 55. When he says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Psalm 55 is written by David. And David is picturing a time in his life when his enemies were conspiring against him. He describes how bitter they were, how they were holding grudges against him. And then he goes on to say why the real grudge and pain that he was experiencing was not because they were his enemy, but because these people were his friends. They were the ones that at one time in his life he sat down and talked with. He says, we took sweet counsel together within God's house. We went to church together, or we walked together, but now they've all turned against him. He says that their words were smooth as butter, And yet, war was in their heart. Now, if you want to experience a burden, it's to have someone you love turn against you. To do something hurtful to you, and yet have them not admit or own up to it. David says to cast your burden on the Lord because that's a burden that we can't carry. Whether it happened in your childhood or your teenage years or adulthood, those are the burdens that we can't carry. And when we try to carry those things on our own, the adversary uses them to his advantage, catching us off balance and off guard. So we stumble into this fault, or we stumble into that word we should have never spoken. We become unstable. And it begins to deteriorate our very health and our body and bones. and We're not sleeping and we're not eating right. Cast your anxieties on the Lord. The Lord puts you under his mighty hand so that you finally realize in the proper time that you can't carry that anymore. And when you realize that, he takes the hand off you and opens it up. So you can put that burden into his care. And you need to do it again and again and again. That's the strange hope of the Christian faith. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will restore you, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We don't know how long that little while will be. The contrast is between a little while of suffering in this world and an eternal glory in the world to come. And no matter how long a little while is, the eternal weight of glory is going to far surpass it beyond what we could ever suffer in this world. (coughs) This is grace. This is the God of all grace. This is the exhortation at the end that Peter says is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it with a humble heart, not alone, but always together. You see, Peter knows what it's like to fumble the football. Peter let Jesus down in a way that probably none of us could could really experience. He let Jesus down in a way that actually denied him at the time when Jesus was looking for friends the most, when he was on trial, ready to go to crucifixion. And Peter had relied on his own pride for so long, thinking he would never deny Jesus. He would never let him down till he was all alone, And the one who prowls about like a roaring lion found him. Peter knows then what it's like to be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. That it's the true grace of God alone that can give us that positive, hope-filled, encouraged outlook in our lives. And just like Peter, we can't do it alone either. We have to stand together with Christ, with each other, encouraging one another on and on until Jesus finally returns. Amen.